Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. This is Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, today, I'm joined by my colleague, Cameron Bukhari. He is the Director of Analytical Development at New Lines Institute, the think tank very much affiliated with New Lines Magazine, where I'm a senior editor. He, Prior to that, he was also the head of Central Asia Studies at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. And I don't think it's going too far to say that he's a scholar and expert on Afghanistan and also now a topic that everybody on Twitter is going to be an expert about in the next 48 hours, 72 hours. Um, ISIS-K, the Islamic State's affiliate or branch in Afghanistan, which is responsible for the grisly murder of 13 U.S. servicemen. And now it looks to be over 100 people, women and children included, in two suicide bombings yesterday, both at a hotel in Kabul and at Hamid Karzai International Airport. Uh, Cameron, it's it's great to have you on. I think listeners are probably very curious, what in the hell is ISIS-K and how does it differ from core ISIS or the original ISIS, which sprung up originally in Iraq uh, under Abu Musab al-Zarqawi when it was known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then as we know, took over a third of Syria and has been largely strategically defeated, at least its so-called caliphate is in ruins. Tell us a little bit about this group, how they operate, what their relationship is with the Taliban and also with the Haqqani network. Uh, There seems to be a lot of ambiguity and confusion and people are scrambling to kind of make sense of pretty atrocious mass murder. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. Look, if people are confused, there's a reason for that. And that is that Afghanistan, Pakistan is a very fluidic battle space, both in physical terms and ideological terms. Uh, There are all sorts of actors inside Afghanistan and across the border in Pakistan that are all somehow entangled with each other. And this entanglement began when the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan jointly uh, engaged in that operation, uh, the decade-long operation to get Soviet forces out of Afghanistan and mobilized tens of thousands of foreign fighters to come to the aid of Afghan Islamist ur- uh, insurgents so that they could force Soviet forces out of that country. Now, we are 40 years out from that, and so you, what people can imagine that how how much permutation and combination and fragmentation and all those human processes that take place among groups, all of them have taken place. There have been, you know, new groups have emerged. Old ones are still around. There have been mergers and acquisitions. So that's the landscape we're dealing with. But to answer your question, look, ISIS-K is what we in the policy analysis world call in for is shorthand for us to refer to ISIS in AFPAC, in Afghanistan, Pakistan. And the K comes from Khorasan, the word Khorasan. And this is a medieval term for an area that roughly sort of encompasses West, uh, sorry, Eastern Iran, Afghanistan, Western Pakistan, and, you know, tiny parts of, you know, the Central Asian countries that border this region. And it's a term that's been used, you know, in medieval Islamic literature. And it's, uh, there, there are prophecies that are quoted or have been quoted for centuries about how uh, there'll be a victorious group in this region, kind of similar to what ISIS talks about in the context of the Middle East. And say, for example, 
the town of Babak, if you will. And, and so it's the same eschatology, it's the same religious mythology. And so this is where that K comes from. Now, who are these people? They clearly haven't parachuted down from you know, the sky and they weren't transported by air from you know, Iraq and Syria, which is the core of ISIS. These are local people who were at one point part of the Afghan Taliban movement part of the Pakistani Taliban movement, part of a very notorious anti-Shia group in Pakistan called Lashkar-e-Jangvi. L-E-J is the acronym for that. And it had relations with AQ. It helped uh, found the Pakistani Taliban insurgency and, th- and then joined forces with ISIS. So these are old actors who have rebranded themselves and signed on to the Caliphate project because of different reasons. So I hope that sort of like lays it all out. And but let me ask you, the relationship with the Taliban has been less than friendly. In fact, they've been ferocious adversaries on the battlefield for several years uh, to one to the point at which even the United States at one point was sort of helping in a de facto manner the Taliban take on ISIS-K. What would you sort of say as to any kind of, I don't know, level of engagement or interleaving between the two? I mean, one of the things that was aired yesterday, even though the president got up and I, well, I think another White House official actually stated that there was no evidence to suggest the Taliban was an accomplice in this terror attack. But a lot of analysts and people in the intelligence community seem to think that that's a distinct possibility, at least in future, not least because the Taliban has been quite adept in the past at being um, sort of pragmatic co-opters of its rivals and enemies. When we hear, as, as we're now unfortunately hearing, that essentially the United States is working with the Taliban in a counterterrorism capability, which we have to do because we're, we're you know, we're, we're losing our skin in the game. There's not going to be an intelligence gathering a capability of America's own once we departed Afghanistan. You know, this sort of strikes a lot of people as very, well, insane, <laughs> not to put too fine a point to it. Is it simply the case that the ideological and doctrinal differences between the two are now so deep and severe, such as that between Al-Qaeda and ISIS, that, you know, we actually don't need to worry about the Taliban sort of turning a blind eye, or if not, in some way facilitating or enabling ISIS-K terrorism? Uh, so, Michael, uh, you've asked, you know, the million dollar question, and it's pretty complex. And, you know, let me try to unpack it. So, first of all, you know, relationship in the making, counterterrorism relationship between Washington and the Afghan Taliban is insane because I wouldn't trust the Taliban at all because of A, because of who they are, B, because of their multiple competing imperatives, and C, because they don't, they're not fully in control. So, here's the thing. And I'll get to the doctrinal differences and the other differences in a moment. The Taliban, uh, it's not just ideology. It's also a game of power. So the Taliban from since their founding have been in, you know, have rejected the idea of the caliphate. I remember back in the 90s hearing about how different groups back in the day were urging Mullah Omar to declare himself caliph, and that way he could gain a lot of recognition from a lot of places, and that would help the Taliban cause when they first came to power. And I know that he rejected it because he said that, I don't want to take that on. His his response was, that's the responsibility I don't want to take on. I only care about what happens in my country, 
and everybody else can care about what happens in their country. And that's about it. We're happy to help people, but whatever others do is their business. And I firmly believe in the concept of an emirate, and this is going to be an Islamic emirate. That's been sort of the founding idea of around which the Taliban have developed their entire ideological, you know, identitarian project, if you will. And then if you notice that even after their regime fell, after the U.S. toppled the regime following the 9-11 attacks, they continued to use the name Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And when they would be asked, well, your government is no longer there. What are you talking about? And they say that this is the name of our movement and we aspire to revive it. If you notice that the document that the Trump administration signed, the agreement, uh, the February 2020 deal with the Taliban that led to the U.S. pullout, also the Taliban are referred to as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, even though they were not a government back then, they were a group. So this idea of emirate is not just ideational, it's also a function of how much they want to take on. And they think that they, they're you know confining themselves to Afghanistan is the best way for them to achieve their ideological and political goals. If you compare and contrast that with what the what ISIS wants, you know, ISIS started out in Iraq, you know, spilled over into Syria. And then all of a sudden, you know, once they declared the caliphate, once they captured territory in the wake of the Arab Spring, and then they started to put out these provinces, you know, that we have a province in West Africa, we, at least on a map. I mean, they're at least from an info ops, from a psychological operations, from a PR point of view, they started to put out all these maps and people, analysts started to look into it and, and say, okay, what does it mean that if you have all these wilayat, which is the Arabic for provinces, a lot of this was aspirational, but a lot of these places, it was also a, a vehicle for them to say, all you Islamists in all these disparate areas you can come join us, and this is how, if you become a province with us. Disaffected Afghan Taliban, Pakistani Taliban, and these other groups in the region and other elements, not necessarily even groups, just came together and said, you know, we're, we're signing on to this project, and this looks like a good deal. So the Taliban are faced a competitor. So you can't, you know, there's only one battle space, and you can't have two of them. At the end of the day, it's not so much ideology who cares what an emirate or a caliphate is in, in its sort of original medieval conception in the here and now, do the Taliban leaders and their commanders of their insurgent movement and everybody who has worked with them, do they get to come to power? And if so, how? Well, this is the way how. Just as the democratic state that the United States tried to build to replace the old Taliban regime was a problem for the Taliban Similarly, but um, and in, I would argue in an even more critical way, the caliphate project or the call for a caliphate by ISIS-K uh, really messes up the Taliban's plans. Because of this, there is a rivalry. But having said that, this space is so fluidic, nobody in the Taliban really knows who's working with who. They're all from, you know, they all have tribal, linguistic, geographic ethnic linkages where these this ideological rivalry you know they, they, these are cross-cutting cleavages that this uh, you know transcend this ideological uh, division if you will so people know each other 
you know, I could easily see, you know, one guy, he's with ISIS, and then his brother or cousin is probably with the Taliban. They communicate with each other. And then there's the Haqqanis, who are part a clique or a faction within the Taliban movement. Even, you know, the the deputy leader of the Taliban is the leader of the Haqqani network, who has ties with ISIS. But before that, they were with AQ. Then a lot of people left AQ to join ISIS. So what I'm trying to say, Michael, is that this is such a messy, messy space. It's very likely, uh, I'll close my remarks with the following, that trusting the Taliban to provide for security while the U.S. evacuates people from Afghanistan is dangerous because you never know who is doing security, quote unquote, for the Taliban and guarding that perimeter. And at the same time is enabling ISIS to come through. Right. You know, it's it's funny because the, the dynamics that you refer to, I mean, are very much the same as what we saw in Syria, where, you know, the free Syrian army was sort of this PR construct. But Really, you're, you were dealing with local katibas and commanders who one day were in one group and the next day in another group. Critics of U.S. policy in Syria would have said, well, yeah, that, that's the problem, right? The, the, the so-called marbling of Jabhat al-Nusra, the, the former al-Qaeda franchise with some of these other rebel, rebel brigades. But, you know, the door swings both ways on that too, right? People who sign up with some very ideologically driven obscurantist organization sometimes don't necessarily do it because they subscribe to the ideology. They do it for pragmatic reasons, right? These happen to be the most disciplined, battle-hardened, well-financed cadres advancing whatever it is that their agenda is they want to see advanced. The fluidity, though, what's concerning is when the United States has absolutely no eyes and ears of its own left, the ability to discern these tribal relationships, in some cases, these familial relationships, and where they could be exploited to weaken the bad guys to the, the benefit of, well, whoever the good guys are at this point, I guess, the, the sort of anti-Taliban resistance that's now emerging in Kanshir. We've lost the ability to do that, right? What's going to happen? The U.S. is going to have to rely once again on ISI, you know, Pakistani intelligence, which, I mean, was almost wholeheartedly responsible for the creation of the Taliban in 1994. I mean, where do you see U.S. policy going from here? I mean, in terms of also just disambiguating who's on which side, as you pointed out, I mean, this is this is so muddled. So uh, absolutely. And I know you started that uh, to, to talk about the material reasons. Let me just add to what you said by saying that ultimately, wherever you start out in your career as a militant or a foot soldier, and you're in this space, you are no different than anybody else in, uh, you know, at the early stages of their normal careers, if you will, where you are employed with one company or employer, but then opportunities arise and you move on. You do your time and you move on because they offer you a better compensation package there's a promotion, there's all sorts of incentives to leave your you know, employer to join the new one. And this is the same, because at the end of the day, what we don't realize is that this is a political economy. We tend to think of terrorist organizations as from an ideological lens, but, but this is a political economy. The fighter, and we're talking about you know, the Middle East and South Asia and that part of the world, the, a single fighter 
you know, isn't just fighting and earning for himself and not just even for his nuclear family, assuming he's married, but for the broader clan, which includes siblings, parents, grandparents, cousins, whatever. And he's not the only one, obviously, you know, other male members and even perhaps in many cases, female members are involved in this enterprise as well, because it's a it's a way to earn a living. So and that's why, you know, in Syria, you saw people went from, you know, you said free Syrian army to Ahrar al-Sham to Nusra to ISIS. And then some people went from ISIS back to other places because of this, because they, they saw which way the wind was blowing. It's like someone is in a company and that com- they know the company isn't doing well. And before being handed the pink slip, you jump ship. You find an alternative. You know, this place isn't doing well. They're not making money uh, and it isn't looking financially viable. I'd better not wait around. I should look for other things. Same logic applies there. So I think that this is something that we need to get better at in terms of understanding terrorist organizations through different conceptual lenses and through different frames of reference, if you will. Look, at the end of the day, look, the Pakistanis are, you're absolutely right. The Pakistanis are in big trouble because this is a Frankenstein's monster that has morphed into a multiplicity of monsters. It's just so out of control. It is well beyond what we would call a multi-headed hydra. This is a huge landscape that threatens you know, the Pakistani state. The Pakistani state experienced that from 2007 till 2014-15 some seven to eight bloody years in which 80,000 Pakistanis lost their lives. Pretty much all the major installations were attacked by the Pakistani Taliban rebels, backed by Al-Qaeda at the time. ISIS wasn't around. And so they understand and they are now worried that this spillover is coming. But the problem is that they've been at this sort of project of trying to support the Afghan Taliban in pursuit of strategic imperatives vis-a-vis, you know, Afghanistan and India, that it is difficult for them to turn around. So in the years between when they were facing this ferocious insurgency and they lost large swaths of territory to Taliban rebels in their northwest along the border with Afghanistan, they used to sort of say, okay, that there are the good Taliban, i.e. the Afghan Taliban, who fight in Afghanistan, which they saw as the good war, the legitimate war, and even though they were aligned with with the Americans. But then those who fought the Pakistani state on this side of the Duran line they said these were the bad Taliban. So the good versus bad Taliban dichotomy or frame of reference became sort of like a national narrative for many, many years in order to make sense of this messy landscape that nobody could tell apart. And then, of course, if you're a big, large intelligence organization, you have, you're bloated yourself. And the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing because in the nat- in the uh, you know in intelligence as you well know, Michael, because uh, you you study uh, you know the Kremlin, everything is on a need to know basis, heavily compartmentalized, and even the bosses at the top don't know what's happening. Everything is on autopilot. So if someone is managing a particular project, they keep doing it until they're called to you know either change their or their orders are changed or they need to brief someone high on above 
to say, okay, this is what I'm doing and this is where we are in this project. So this is where the Pakistanis are. And I, I think that relying on Pakistan, it's just like we have no choice but to work with the, you know, the Taliban, the devil that you know, to fight ISIS, the devil that you don't want to know. And it's kind of like we align with Stalin to fight Hitler and only to come back to fight Stalin later on. But that's what was happening in World War II. I think that just we will need to work with the Pakistanis, but with one thing, you know, bearing in mind one key thing is let's not assume that the Pakistanis are in full control. On the contrary, I think they, we assume that they're, uh, the understanding of just how much control they have is in our minds pretty exaggerated. Right. And I mean, look, the, the other kind of coefficient in this equation is the Russians, right? You know, I'm sure you've been tracking. I have done several episodes of this show trying to figure out if there's any credibility to the allegation that they were assisting the Taliban with, but with an explicit goal of trying to increase U.S. and U.K. body bags, right? The, the so-called bounty story, which was, was sort of dear to my own research part because it involved GRU Unit 29155. You know, they have the Skripal, Yebrev assassination attempts and Montenegro coup. And so basically the idea, though, which I think the conventional wisdom does seem to be in agreement on, is yes, the Russians have had a relationship with the Taliban, but it's because they fear the most two things, the rise of ISIS-K in Afghanistan and also the outflow of the poppies, right? The opium heroin trade, which has deeply damaged Russian society for many years. So the Russians decided in their infinite wisdom, even though the Taliban is technically a proscribed terror organization in Moscow, that they needed to kind of cut some sort of long-term deal with this insurgency because they knew they were going to essentially inherit Afghanistan when the Americans are gone. And the Russian response to this chaotic withdrawal is, you know, on the one hand, schadenfreude, you know, oh, good. Uh, we, they did to themselves what they did to us in, in, uh, in the 1980s, but also concern uh, and anxiety. Like, what is this going to mean for, for Russia's Central Asian periphery? What do you make of how the Russians, I mean, either, gosh, in concert with the Pakistanis and the, the Iranians, what is going to be Putin's approach to trying to contain Afghanistan now? I think it's going to be pragmatic. I think just like the United States has withdrawn and has no choice but to somehow work with the Taliban, which the president was trying to explain yesterday in his presser. I think Putin is in the same boat in far more critical ways than even the United States. The Russians and the Chinese took comfort for many, many years from the fact that we were underwriting security in Afghanistan. We were making sure that whatever happens in that country doesn't spill out. And that gave, you know, a lot of room for the Russians to do other things and not have to worry about it. And now that, you know, we're no longer there, we're all but out, the Russians and the Chinese are scrambling. And you see the, there was a, a statement from the president of uh, Uzbekistan, uh, who's a, you know, close ally or, and or partner of the Kremlin, who said that he is in daily communication with the Taliban. And so obviously the, the Russians have to figure out how this thing is going to play out. They have very few levers with which to influence things in Afghanistan. See, it was one thing 
for, you know, when the U.S. forces were there to send money, intel, weapons to the Taliban to make life difficult for the U.S., and to develop relations. That was flirtation, if you will, on the part of Kremlin. Low-cost, zero-liability kind of transactional relationship. Now, the Taliban are no longer an insurgent force. They're on their way to forming a government. And they have a lot of foreign fighters from Central Asia. They have a lot of foreign fighters from the Russian Federation itself, Tatars, Chechens, and other minorities that are of Muslim faith. And these number in the several thousands. So ideally, they want them back. The Taliban are extremely unlikely to just hand them over, just as I don't think that the Taliban are going to hand over Uyghurs to the Chinese that the Chinese are demanding. So then, you know, what do the uh, Russians do? And that has to do with, well, I think the Russians are probably actually definitely in a better place than the, the Chinese are because the Russians do deploy forces well beyond their borders. The Chinese never deploy a multi, have never deployed a multi-divisional force anywhere beyond their borders. So the Chinese will have to outsource this, relying on their relationship with the Iranians, with the Pakistanis, with the Central Asian states. They're opening up a bilateral relationship with the Taliban or have been for some time now. They're more struggling. The Russians have still have some cards. They, they, a, there's a standoff. Russian territory is far from Afghanistan. It's their near abroad, i.e. Central Asia, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan and uh, Tajikistan that are most likely to be affected. And even within the cluster of three, it's Uzbekistan and Tajikistan because the population centers of Turkmenistan are far, much of it is far from the Afghan border. And we're talking barren areas, sparsely populated areas that, you know, basically serve as a bulwark or a buffer, at least provides for a standoff. So they have to worry about Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, which is why they've been engaged in these exercises using their troops based in Tajikistan on those two borders and working with the Uzbek and the Tajik for security forces to make sure that they are in a state of high alert. Now, the question is, you can't always be on a state of high alert. Those are emergency contingencies at some point. Uh, you know, you have burnout effects, so you have to have a new normal. And I think that that new normal is they're also going to now cooperate with the Iranians and the Pakistanis. And plus, they have their old relationships. Look, the old People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the Marxist group that was in power and was supported by the Soviets, many of those people are still around and they are you know, they've been elites inside the U.S.-backed government, the outgoing or, you know, he's already out. He's no longer foreign minister. The Taliban have taken over. Hanif Atmar, the Ashraf Ghani's foreign minister, is a former PDPA, you know, leader. And so he has those relationships with Moscow. They have the relationship with the, uh, the Panshiris, those who are hold up in Panjshir in the north and pledging to resist the Taliban. So there are some cards in there, but you know it's a struggle. They have assets, they have intelligence contacts, and they also have the luxury of distance. But I think that's where we are when it comes to the Russians. Well, Kamran, I, I, I've exhausted my, my store of questions for you. Is there anything else that, that I haven't addressed and that you would like to, because it's of particular importance or urgency? Yeah, I just sort of like in, in closing, I just want the listeners to get a sense of 
what next at a strategic level? I think that in the light of what happened yesterday, particularly, I think that two things are going to happen. Uh, the Taliban will want to leverage the ISIS threat to get the world, the US, the, you know, the Western world and uh, other parts of the international community to do business with them. And some will reluctantly do it, and, but we're not going to you know, have uh, a normal relationship with the Taliban regime anytime soon. Because the Taliban regime itself, I'm not too hopeful that this regime has staying power. I think that A, because they, they don't know how to govern. B, they're trapped in the conflicting position of trying to be pragmatic while not being able to give up on their ideology, especially with ISIS overhang, because the more they become pragmatic, the more they risk losing ideological people. Everybody's ideological in the Taliban, but you can't ask these people to become pragmatic. It's one thing for the leadership to you know, know how to talk in front of cameras. It's another thing for every rank and file foot soldier to all of a sudden not be what he has been for so long. So if those people become disillusioned, then where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go to ISIS. And so I think that it's safe to say that the new chapter of the 40-year-old war in Afghanistan has begun, and I'm calling it the Taliban versus ISIS war. Well, we'll have to uh, bring you back on when that war escalates, which probably won't be very long the way things are going. Kamran Wakari, it's been a pleasure to have you and your expertise, and I hope you are doing well otherwise. And uh, I look forward to actually seeing you for the first time in Washington, D.C. and in the near, or I guess now, not so near future given COVID restrictions. But um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. Looking forward to it. Cheers. You've been listening to Foreign Office. We'll see you next week.